Hello, everyone. I said go take a nap, but then I managed to grab Nick Vidal outside in the coffee area. The best thing about doing a podcast at a conference is if you don't have a guest for 30 minutes and you want to talk, it's pretty easy to just go and basically press gang someone into coming and talking to you. So thank you, Nick, for showing up. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for bringing me here. (laughs) Thanks for being here. So Nick is joining me and joining us here at Fospec Stage. He is the new community manager and head and I think developer. What's your technical title? Community manager for Clearly Defined. For Clearly Defined. Mm -hmm. So Clearly Defined has a few people on staff. How many? Yes. So Clearly Defined was initially developed at Microsoft. Yeah. And it was donated by Microsoft to the Open Source Initiative five years ago. Yeah. There's a lot of employees still from Microsoft working on that. Mm. But right now it's really an open source project run by the community for the community. And I just joined as a community manager for Clearly Defined. I'm three weeks into the job. I'm still <laughs> learning about it, about it. And I'm really looking forward to grow this community and truly to help the projects. So tell me what Clearly Defined is again. Yes. So Clearly Defined yep. is a project that tries to bring clarity to mm. licensing information for open source projects. Right now, This is a very complex problem and not just in terms of compliance, but also in terms of security. Mm -hmm. How can we have an universal database where for every software components, we have a clear definition of the license information, a versioning, and how can we make sure that the software that we're running is compliance and secure. So that's the challenge for clearly defined. That's the the problem that we're trying to address. So secure is an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Do you have a list of vulnerabilities? Do you have a list of bugs? Exactly. So it's very much related to S-bombs. Okay. Right now, S-bombs are very, very popular, especially because of since Log4j, governments have realized, not just governments, business and overall, have realized the importance of open source yep. and how it affects society, right? If there's a vulnerability, this can have a huge impact mm. on, on society. So S-bombs are really popular and clearly defined. They actually have a, in their roadmap to develop clearly secure to make sure that it's not just about licensing information, but also security information about bugs and vulnerabilities. Ideally, we could have open source, a clear definition of open source licensing information and also security issues Mm. for the whole software everywhere, universally. When you talk about about S-bombs, you talk about software bills and material. Exactly. That's what that stands for. And when you're talking about the metadata that you have included defined, how many software packages are are listed? I have to look this up. You can go to clearlydefined.io and there under stats, you'll be able to see that we have thousands. Of thousands, de- okay. Thousands, uh, maybe tens of thousands cool. of definitions. It's quite a lot and it's, it's growing. It's doubling every year. Yep. Yes, so it's this metadata 
But what's so interesting about clearly defined is that it's not just having this information and providing this information, but also allowing lawyers yeah. or maintainers, once they realize that there's some missing data, they can contribute back and that they can also curate this data. So that's when we close the feedback loop and we contribute to this. It's almost like a Wikipedia for SPOMs. And so you have SPDX license data, you have repository data, you have author and maintainer data, I assume. Mm -hmm. Do you have, and you have vulnerabilities. Is that different than the OSSF's database? Yes, it, it's different. Right now, as part of my role, I'm yeah. trying to reach out to different communities to see how we can work together. Cool. So not just OpenSSF, yep. also other communities like ORT. Yep. We're going to have a community day happening right here in Berlin, right after FOSS Backstage on the 15th and on the 16th. Open source research toolkit, right? Yes. Cool. R review toolkit. Review toolkit, yeah. right. And that's with Thomas Steinbergen. Exactly. We had on the podcast yesterday. So exactly. if we've missed that, go ahead and look at that. Cool. <laughs> uh, we also have the Open Chain project, yep. the To Do group. Yep. Anna is also, she's Anna leading Anna Jimenez, the... also on the podcast yesterday. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. You got everyone, basically. Working on it, working on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, cool, awesome. So, so w there's a lot of relationship. Also Cyclone DX, yep. SpeedyX, of course. There's several groups as part of the Linux Foundation, OpenSSF, or OWASP, or OSI, with Clearly Defined. Yep. And it's really nice for us to work together yep. and to solve this problem because it's a big problem. And we everyone has to work together to, to make it easier for developers, for lawyers, for everyone to, to solve those issues. When you talk about Microsoft giving, by the way, I agree with you. When you talk about Microsoft giving clearly defined to the OSI, are you in the OSI's payroll now? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. So donations to the OSI and membership fees go towards helping you do your work. Exactly, yes. That's a really good reason to give to the OSI, everyone. If you feel like the OSI does a good job, yes. you should do and that. In fact, the OSI is celebrating 25 years this year, it's so we have a long history. Yep. The open source movement was born from the free software movements, yep. of course. And we, we shared this history together. And open source came to be to really help business understand how open source development is, is good, how collaboration is good, and how this can help society. Awesome. What are you doing to celebrate 25 years? It's pretty interesting. So I just joined the OSI yep. about three, four weeks ago. So, wow. and there's a lot going on. We were part of the Fosdon keynotes. Cool. This, this is an important event that happened about one month ago. And we're organizing with several conferences around the world to celebrate this by having cupcakes. So here at, <laughs> here at FOSS Backstage, they had some small cupcakes with the when? OSI logo. Uh, yeah, I'll be yesterday. back, everyone. Uh, thank you so much. This has been great. No. Cool. That's really fun. And yeah. every conference, we're trying to celebrate in a different way, yeah. either by keynotes, by cupcakes, by having a printed timeline when, where people can put post-its and say, hey, this is when I started working with open source <laughs> using this project. Yeah. What was really interesting is that I was part of the OSI five years ago yep. while celebrating the 20 years 
that was one of my main roles back then. Mm. And so joining right now for the 25 years feels really special. And five years ago, we helped celebrate the 20 years of open source across 40 events mm. worldwide. The main open source conferences like open source summits yep. from the Linux Foundation, yep. FOSN as well, FOS Backstage. It was their first event <laughs> and they, they celebrated open source in a really big way as well. As many as well as many other conferences in Europe, in the US, in Latin America, yep. in Asia. It was a huge celebration. What was interesting about back then is that at that time some licenses that came, like the Commons Clause. Yeah. I'm not sure if you remember that. Or also the server side public license. Yep. They were trying to say, hey, this is the new open source. We're open source. When in fact, they were proprietary licenses. Yeah. So at the time, those five years ago, there was this challenge to the open source definition. So while we were celebrating, we're, we're also gathering community supports for the open source definition. Mm. So it was a crucial moment for us to say, no, this is what's open source definition. This is what's open source. This is the definition. This is what the community understands as open source. Mm. And I think we have succeeded. And right now, at these moments, while we're celebrating the 25 years, we also see this, it's not so much a question right now about the open source definition, but we also see how critical open source is in terms of a working society, how important licensing information is now with SBOMs and all the security issues as well. So this is, I believe this is the next step that we mm. have to tackle for, for this year and going forward. Excellent. I know Stefano Moffoli is going around and talking a lot about exactly. AI <laughs> and talking about the licensing in AI and how that's going to uh, impress things. Uh, I was curious. I haven't talked to him too much recently about this, but do you know about any license issues with ChatGPT, which is the topic of the day, with any issues around what you can feed into a large data model and how that's being used? I'm glad that you brought this up. Yeah. This is a really important discussion. So Stefano really works hard together with a whole bunch of specialists around yeah. AI yeah. to create this podcast and also video recordings talking about exactly those issues. Mm. It's a new, it's copyrights. It's really interesting. All, all those questions related, what's copyrightable yeah. and how AI is challenging this yeah. right now. Yeah. When you gather data, images, or texts from the internet, even proprietary, uh, uh, even copyrightable images and texts, and you feed that into a model, uh, and the result of that, is that copyrightable? Yeah. How does that work? And there's also the question of the new models that we have on, on ChatGPT, they're mostly proprietary. How does that work? How will that impact society? Mm. Will society be able to use AI for its advantage or will it be tied to the interests of a company or a corporation or, or whatever, or mm. governments? Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I know he's having the podcast and mm -hmm. those conversations are happening. Do you know of any decisions have been made? Do you know if there's any, any movements towards, say, having AI licenses at the OSD that'll work into the OSD or AI licenses that'll be part of the OSI's purview mm -hmm. into what they have to maintain? I think it's the, we set the stage to have a discussion around this. Yeah. It's very challenging. I think it's not up to us to make a decision. Mm. I don't see the OSI as an authority here, but as an organization that wants to create these types of discussion. Yeah, okay. We're working together with a lot of organizations that have a, a better position yeah. to actually define this, like the Eleo for AI Foundation right now, uh, as well as others. And it's really interesting to see how this is going to progress. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have the answers right now, but we want this to evolve. We want to make sure that le legislation or any type of restriction will not be a, a blockage for innovation. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we can innovate and the users, most, impo most importantly, users have control over their data mm. and over uh, how to evolve this. Yeah. Because AI, if you think about it, it's in the future, in the very near future, I believe, we'll be able to dream and to, with the help of AI, to materialize this, materialize these dreams. So right now, I can imagine something. I can write a prompt, and this will give me an image. Yeah. It will generate an image. Yep. In the very near future, whatever you dream, this will become a reality. Uh, maybe in a digital form, yep. or maybe even in a physical form. If you don't have control over that, of how this works on the algorithm, this is going to shape how your dreams are going to materialize. And maybe it's not the dream that you were hoping for. You So this is really a question about where humanity is going to go, right? If you have control over your dreams and how this will evolve, then I see that's why it's important to have this as an as open, right? Yeah. What a nightmare. <laughs> so it works out. That's how it yeah. works out. That's really cool. Okay. Excellent. So one second. Someone left the door open. I'm just going to close that. Nick, tell me, do you have a talk on today? I gave a talk yesterday. What was that about? It was about ass bombs, six store, and confidential computing. So I'm currently serving as the outreach chair sorry, the chair of the outreach committee for the Confidential Company Consortium from the Linux Foundation. Yep. And now in my new role, I'm studying S-Bombs and Sigstor. So I wanted, to, I wanted to give a talk that combined both and <laughs> cool. see if there's a relationship. Yep. And indeed, there is a, a very good relationship. So I'm going to give a brief introduction to Confidential Computing. Confidential Computing is relatively new. Confidential Computing. Yes. Okay. It's about encrypting data while in use. Yeah. So at the CPU level, yeah. we know about protecting data in transits. That's when we use HTTPS. Yeah. 
the data that's flowing between the browser and the server that's encrypted, so it's safe. Yep. Also, data arrest, data in storage, this data is encrypted as well. So when we have this image or files saved in the clouds that's encrypted, that's safe as well. Yep. How about when you're using, when the data is in use at the CPU level, at the memory level? Interesting, okay. So by encrypting the data that's in memory, yeah. even if the whole cloud infrastructure is compromised, Data is fine. The data yeah. is still secure. Yeah. It's still safe. And this is like mind-blowing. We have sectors like uh, finance, banking, healthcare. They would love that. They cannot use the cloud today. Yeah, yeah. But by using confidential computing, they will be to, they will be able to use the clouds, the edge, IoT. So confidential computing comes as a way to make the clouds more secure. Yep. And it does have this relationship with S-bombs. Yeah. And also Six Store, it's it complements those as a way to really make the clouds more secure. Interesting. This brings me back to another question I had earlier, which I didn't ask, which I wanted to ask, <laughs> which is Six Store, OSSF, clearly defined, massive databases filled with tons of metadata about open source projects mm -hmm. to try to help sustain the ecosystem and understand what's going on. Do any of those store any information on governance patterns? <laughs> no is an okay answer. I, I don't know if they do. I know they store authors and I know they may store contributors and maintainers, mm -hmm. but I don't think they store who to call and who to fund. That's a very good question. Maybe that's something that we have to work towards. Cool. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on that right now. And oh, so really? I, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, so last week I was at a conference Weirdly called Sustain, which is great. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was in San Francisco. It was an invite-only academic conference mm -hmm. about how do we keep open source going. They learned about Sustain a bit after they had named it, but I was invited. Thank you, Greg Bloom. And it was really nice, actually. It was really great to have new voices, new insights. And at one point, I sat down with Julia Ferroli, who you may know, who's amazing. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about um, what a governance database would look like. And like, well, it's got to look like clearly defined. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. And so That's, we're trying to figure that yeah. out right now. So if you're interested, I would love to talk to you later. I'm about that. interested on that. Cool. Because yeah. I think... <laughs> I think that's the other half of the problem, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. if we talk about, well, there's a bug and then we can report it out like a contact tracing app, excellent. Mm -hmm. If we talk about, well, that's not really a good license, we can report that with SPDX, excellent. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a lot here to say, yeah, that's just one maintainer in Kansas, man. Mm -hmm. that, and that dude, that dude needs to, needs to stop. So it'd be really interesting if we could talk about how to effectively annotate mm -hmm. and store that information. So Th that's very, that's a very interesting question and it has everything to do with susta sustainability of open source. So cool. I can see. Well, let's talk yeah. about it. That would be great. <laughs> Nick, this is really excellent. I hope you continue to have fun on the conference circuit celebrating oh, yeah. 25 years of open source. I <laughs> hope you don't sure. do that for 25 years. Seems like you did it five years ago and now, <laughs> but maybe next yeah. in five years in 2028, we can go ahead and do 30. <laughs> um, for sure. Although I feel like you should maybe only celebrate binary Oh, yeah. You know? so yeah, we should celebrate 32 years. 32 down. is yeah, much better. It's than, a nice yeah, number. Yeah. We should do that. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people read your words online? Do you have a Twitter, mm -hmm. Mastodon, et cetera? Yeah. So thank you, Richard, for inviting me. Yep. The Open Source Initiative has an account on Mastodon. Yep. It's social.opensource.org. That's our, our 
own Mastodon server. Cool. And the accounts number, I believe it's it's OSI. Yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll have yeah. the logo too. So yes, it should exactly. be findable. You can find me there as well. Cool. It's Nick. And you we have a lot of folks there as well. Simon Phipps, Deb, Stefano as well. So everyone is there. And please follow us. You can always follow you can also follow us on Twitter as well, although we prefer Mastodon for now. <laughs> That's totally fair yeah. and legitimate towards the more sustainable thing. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference and have a good day. Thank you, Richard. Have a good day, you too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain. This is Richard Litauer. I'm uh, back here at Fosbeck Sage in Berlin today. Very excited to be here, and I'm here right now for the first podcast of the day. I hope there are people listening at home. That's cool. If not, that's also cool. Hope you're listening later. And I'm here with Masai Shida. Masai, yokozo, and welcome. It's great to have you here. Masai is joining us at Fosbeck Sage, where she's giving a talk on diversity in open source, particularly from the Asian perspective. How do we get more Asians into open source or so on? But I'm probably already messing up. And I would really want to hear her perspective and not mine. So Masai, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting and really great to be here. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you so this. much. Masai is incredibly kind. I ran up and said, do you want to be in the podcast? And she's like, okay. And here we are. So you work at VMware, right? That's right. And you're a senior product manager? Program manager. Program manager. Yep. Exactly. Okay, cool. Well, tell me a bit about what brought you here today at Fossback Stage. So I am here to talk about the Asian perspective, you know, the diversity in open source, because I am Japanese. I was born and grew up in Japan, and I had an opportunity to work in a Western company. I mean, the US and Europe company, but the first company I joined was Japanese company. And at that time, when I graduated, our country was, I mean, Japan is famous for the lower equity. Yeah. Gender equity, unfortunately. But when I was a student, it was worse than today. I was lucky enough to work in a US and European company to be sort of overwhelmed by the gender equity and also the national equity as well. Mm. But I can see in open source community, it's getting better. DEI is just everywhere and everyone knows about how important the DEI and some of the company have a high DEI score are doing, I think the data shows 35% better doing for their productivity and also they're more innovative. So Mm. I think there's no doubt that DEI is really important. However, in an open source community, the data shows, yes, Asia, especially China and India, they're really, you know, big populations. And then they have loads of GitHub accounts and they are sort of participating in data in open source. If I see the other data, I can hear very little voices uh, compared with their populations. So I'm just wondering yeah. why Asian participation is not that big in the open source community, especially. So this is not quite, you know, open source itself is a community and it's not the same as a company trying to hire more diverse people like, you know, multinational and also many, many, many ways of diverse people. But open source community is different because of this nature. So I was trying to focus on why the Asian participation is lower. I have spoken many, you know, ex-colleagues, my colleagues, 
and also community members and leaders and my managers, many people. And then they all said that they struggled to have more Asian participation in their open source communities. Hmm. So I focus on that and trying to find what's the barriers and how we can sort of overcome it so that we can improve the diversity in open source. As a Japanese woman and mom, (laughs) and also the engineer and program manager, I just look at these things from my perspective and trying to sort of work out what's the probable barriers for us. So there's a lot to unpack there. That's (laughs) awesome. Yes, there are massive communities Mm -hmm. of coders in Japan and China and other Asian countries. And I don't often see them on the GitHub repos that I look at. Can we start there? Can you talk about why it's maybe hard for them? Is it English being a barrier? Is it technical skills being a barrier? Is it cultural? I think the biggest barrier is going to be time and the language mm. is the biggest because most people who I interviewed mention about these two, especially the time, because obviously Asian countries are, I think it's compared with Europe, it's eight hours, nine hours ahead. Means when we wake up, then it's already evening for them. The time zone is the difference. Time zone is different. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So open source is really a popular and active in the North America. Everyone yeah. knows. And also Europe as well. And then America and Europe has five to eight hours time differences already. Yep. But plus the eight hours difference. <laughs> yeah. So the difference is huge. So time is the issue. And some of the open source communities are actually happening. You know, there's no time zone friendly to everyone. We know that. So it's impossible. However, if it's midnight or three o'clock in the morning, it's almost impossible. Even if you're trying to do it once a week, it's really challenging. You know, you have your family and you have your own work and everything is is so difficult. So I think time is the issue. Time difference and also the time allowance as well, because especially if you are a mom or even dad, you have child, then then child has their routines and it's really, and also you are working. So you have to do the work as well as you look after your families. And also you may have other duties, you know, to look after your parents. So time allowance is also important. And some of the Asian countries I don't want to stereotype here at all because we all have a different characters and different background. However, what I can see is a national behavioral influence. For example, your family background and also the culture, your Asian culture, country culture. Asia is consists of over 20 countries. So there are many different countries and they're not all the same. But I can see some tendency because I was born and grew up in Japan. So I understand women tend to have sort of this childcare, especially have to have this duty, you know. So these things doesn't help as well. So yeah, two things from time, time difference and also time allowance. Time allowance, I mean, not a stereotype. Yeah, how how much time you are allowed to spend outside of your core hours. That's what I mean. Yeah, and and that's really hard in in places like Japan where the average working week is so much longer than even the US, which is longer than Europe. It must be quite difficult. Interesting. So one of the questions I have is when I think of open source, I think of asynchronous work. You file an issue, you can go away, someone will respond to you later and it works. But you're saying that just the time zone difference, even though it's asynchronous, it's still hard. Mm -hmm. Have you found more Asian representation in global projects at the corporate level 
where they have some support from corporations for working? Or are you talking specifically about, say, open source projects, which are volunteer mm-hmm. and even volunteering ones are difficult? Actually, yes. I heard it is going to be my part of my presentation, but when <laughs> I spoken to my Indian colleague, yeah. she said she works in the same company, so she works in VMware, okay. but she said, you know, she's India and she lives in India. And she said, apart from VMware and other tech giants companies yeah. in India, there's almost no companies who are sort of supporting open source contribution. Yeah. So I was surprised to hear that because I thought India is really advanced IT companies, but she said, no, no, that only the big companies allows, let them work during the work hours on the open source contribution. Yeah. It is influenced by the corporate support as well. It doesn't really help as well. Mm. Not as much as here, for example, in, you know, here's Germany and also I live in UK and also the US. And I know the open source is really active and the companies do understand the value of the open source contributions. And then they let their employees to work during the work time on open source contribution. Depends on the, which project you are contributing, for example. Yes. If it's not work related, not many corporate will encourage them to spend uh, yeah. to contribute to during the work time. But I think most people who I know are working during the working hours because uh, their project is part of their work. And other thing is that language is a big challenge as well. For example, in Japan, I think 95% people are Japanese in our country means we don't need to use English at all day to day. So they can speak, especially the young people. There are many good English speakers. But when I was young and then when I was working in Japan, English speakers are very rare. Even they're professional people. Even if you're working in an international company, it wasn't really common for them to speak in English. So writing, reading, fine. But oral communication is a key. And also it's a complex because on top of that, we are not very good at confrontational conversation and we value the harmony, harmonize, synchronize, everyone good, if you know what I mean. It's a cultural difference. Cultural difference. It just doesn't help. Even if we don't understand what is said in the English meeting, we hesitate to ask, uh, pardon me, can you repeat again? Mm-hmm. I couldn't say that. When I start to work in <laughs> Microsoft in US and I just think, oh my God, what are they talking about? But I don't want to stop the flow. I didn't want to stop the flow. So I didn't really question back. I do now. Yep. Uh, yeah. I think it's a cultural difference. So again, I don't want to stereotype, but there is a tendency and uh, I think it's important for everyone to understand the cultural difference value, respect each other's differences. I think that is the key in open source community, especially across global companies. So when we talk about these differences, we talk about the lack of representation. Mm -hmm. The ask is, well, if you run an open source project, if you're in a company that has open source, be respectful, be mindful, take time to listen. Is there anything else that we could do to improve representation? Should we be having people wake up at 2 a.m. and having a video call? Should we be hiring people in Japan to write documentation in Japanese so that it's easier to read? What would you do to improve representation besides just be mindful? Yeah, it is a really hard. So let's just localize it with their languages. It doesn't work. It's because Japanese would be able to understand English and then Chinese, Indians. But I think otherwise really 
probably challenging. Yeah. For example, not everyone understands Japanese, not everyone understands Chinese and Indians. So I think it's both sides, you know, diversity, the change has to happen in both sides mm. because as I said, that there's no friendly meeting time for everyone else. We have to sort of flex each other. In my opinion, as a result, rather than thinking about localizing documentation and email and communications, we sort of try to understand that we are not the equal position to understand using this language and having this conversation in this topic. So we understand the differences and respect it and then try to sort of get close to each other, mm. <laughs> not just one side improve. Mm. We all have to appreciate it and trying to come to the same goal mm. because as a result, English is an official business language and I think it will be in the future as well. Yeah. Well, the clever tool will resolve all these headaches in the, <laughs> in the next few years. However, until then, I think we all have to sort of work towards the same goal and respect each other mm. and work towards our all participation. One of the interesting data shows that the Asian people who leave the community, open source community, they stay more when they actually join the conversation meetings rather than just commit a code and creating the issues. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, so yeah. I think that encouraged them, you know, something sparks in their mind and they, okay, so I can do that. It's some sort of confidence and then that builds up a bit by bit. Mm. And then I had the similar experience rather than just avoiding it, escaping it, be brave and then try to challenge it so that you can build up little confidence mm. bit by bit, mm. then that will grow. And then one day we are all discussing at the same table, which is great. Mm. So that's what I sort of go aim the goal today Excellent. in my talk. Thank you so much. You have one other point I want to get to quickly, which is you're obviously of Asian descent, but you also are Asian because mm -hmm. you were raised in Japan mm -hmm. and you speak Japanese natively. There are a lot of people of Asian descent in the U.S. and in Europe who are also not Asian in the sense that they're European or they're American. Can you talk a bit about how we have more diversity from those perspectives in our spaces where the cultural difference isn't as large, mm -hmm. but is still there? Is there anything that we could do to improve that metric or improve that angle or at least include them in our communities? In the introduction to your talk, which I read, it talked about people of Asian descent being different than people of Asian nationality or Asian origin, because there's differences when you think about someone who is raised in the States, right? but is Asian, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who is Asian from Asia, right? That's right. And I don't know a lot about that topic, so I was just really curious about your perspective on it. Thank you for reminding me. I wrote my abstract for a long time, so okay. I forgot about it. But <laughs> cool. yeah, it is yeah. actually the first thing I thought about when I worked in US and I thought, so, you know, what's the difference? Because they're Asian from Asia, but they were born here and grew up. And also even for the people who are born in Asian country, when yeah. they start to come to US and Europe, when they are students, there's a huge difference mm -hmm. because by the time I come to Western countries, I was already working, but there's a significant difference in the language skills between them and me because mm. they came here as a student and they had a fun, you know, they have a friend and they went for a drink and go to the nightlife. And, and also they are watching lots of videos 
this is before Netflix and Amazon Prime. (laughs) So I just wondered why. But just when you're younger, it's much easier. I mean, again, I don't want to stereotype here. We're all different. But I think there is a more chance to absorb in a Western culture and language Mm. uh, when you come here. But in my case, I was born in Japan and my parents are very traditional and my mom was a housewife. Mm. And there's no questions. Most of her generation, my mom's generation mm. was a housewife. So, mm. now, so I thought that is normal. It's all I learned after I grew up. This is why I think that the Asians who were born in and grew up in Western countries or who came to Western countries when they're younger are different. But they have other challenges, like, you yeah. know, it's well known that they have a race criticism and all these type of challenges. That's different. But for specific for open source communities, I think I look at it from different angles and, you know, what we can actually, because there are so many things we have to overcome. But yeah. I want to just share what we think is a problem in open source community mm. for the Asian people who are living, for living Asian countries. So I just wanted to introduce in this first backstage opportunity. Thank you so much for doing that. That's excellent. Masai, where can people find your words online? Do you have a Twitter or a website or a blog? Yeah, I have my VMware's Twitter. Cool. Well, thank you so much. どうもありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。Very